Well, today we continue our series from the Old Testament and have come to the Song of Solomon. I have to confess to you, I have never preached a message from this book. It is, however, an interesting book. God is not mentioned in the book, nor is it quoted in the New Testament. It is an allegory. The story is about Solomon and his lover, but it is allegorical. It is a picture of God's relationship to Israel. You recall that God betrothed Israel to himself. That was the reason when Israel went into idolatry, it was said that they had committed adultery because of the relationship they had with God. It also depicts Jesus' relationship to the church because Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride. So it is an allegory. It also is a parable, and a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The earthly story is the story of Solomon and his lover. The heavenly meaning is about Jesus and his church. Obviously, it is also a song. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, it says, He, speaking of Solomon, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So Solomon then, according to the Bible, wrote 1,005 songs, and this is one of those songs. Matthew Henry wrote, It is not the song of fools, as many of the songs of love are, but the song of the wisest of men. So this then is a song that was written by Solomon. We do not know the stage of his life in which he was when he wrote this song. Matthew Henry again said, Some think that he penned it after he recovered himself by the grace of God from his backslidings as a further a proof of his repentance. He goes on, It is more probable that he penned it in the beginning of his time while he kept close to God and kept up his communion with him. Now, the Jewish rabbis believed that one was not to read this song until one had reached the age of 30. So one was to be 30 or above when they actually read the song. I am going to read a passage of Scripture from the Song of Solomon. It is not going to be an expositional sermon. I don't think that I can pull that off. So I'm going to take the opportunity instead to read a text so you get a flavor for the book. And then I'm going to preach about marriage. Does that sound like a plan? <laughs> so take your Bibles, turn with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. And Solomon here is speaking to this woman. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Some of you guys might ought to try that line sometime. <laughs> your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of a pomegranate behind your veil. 
Your neck is like the tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. And now you know why I have never preached a sermon from the Song of Solomon. But I am going to take the opportunity to speak to you about marriage, and I think that will have to suffice because all of you now are going to go home and study the Song of Solomon. And maybe that's what you should do anyway. There are three ingredients necessary for a marriage, I believe, to be successful. The first is companionship. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse number 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. All right, so when two people then are married, there is a partnership that is formed. Though they are different, they are more complete as a result of that partnership. For instance, with Linda and me, I am, uh, I am not a, uh, an emotional person, and I am not romantic. I'm not big on Valentine's Day and those things. Uh, I think that they are designed to sell cards and flowers. Now, I know that Rex Risch will not like me saying that, but I'm, ju I'm just not a romantic. I have tried to be, and I look silly when I try to do that. I'm just not a romantic. Linda, on the other hand, is more emotional than I, and certainly she is more intuitive than I am. I, I'm pretty much a literalist about things, and I take things as they are said. So we are very different. The point is that we both are stronger as a result of our relationship. See, she is different from me, but we are both stronger within this partnership. Another thing about the partnership of marriage is that it does a lot to cure selfishness. I, I don't like to go shopping, though I go shopping with Linda because she likes to go shopping. I go occasionally, enough, you know, that I don't get in trouble. You men know what I'm talking about. So I go shopping sometimes just to say that, you know, you like to shop and I'll go out there with you. And last night I was up watching the football game and so she came up and, and said, you know, I, I'm, I felt like I ought to be up here with you. And so she was doing whatever it was that she was doing while I'm watching. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that she did that because she doesn't care anything about football. Probably she doesn't know who won. But she was up there. The point is, is that when you have this partnership, this relationship of marriage, the result is, is that it cures a lot of our selfishness, our self-centeredness. And the Bible says they shall become one flesh. That's what happens in the marriage relationship as a result of this partnership. In time, we become more and more like each other. So companionship. The second ingredient is communication. And I say to young people who are getting married, you must learn to communicate or your marriage will not succeed. And I believe that very strongly. 
Some time ago, there was an article in Time magazine about the family, and the article is quoted, Women see conversation as a means of sharing and connecting with others. Men tend to see conversation as a means of solving problems. So there is a difference in the way we communicate. Now, I can perfectly illustrate what Time magazine said. If you play golf, and there is a foursome of ladies in front of you, and every time they hit the ball and the ball is out there, they gather around and talk. They just talk, and you're back there, you're thinking, why didn't somebody hit the ball? What are they talking? I don't have it. I don't know what they're talking about. But they, on every every time they hit the ball, they go gather around the ball, and then they stand there and talk. Now, a man, on the other hand, whenever his ball is there, somebody say, "I think you can get that up with a seven iron." That's about it. But women, whenever they talk, they are making connections. Men are just solving problems. Dr. Jim Smith said. Men talk in generalities while women tend to talk in details. Women tend to feel first and think second. With men, it's the other way around. But communication is necessary for a successful marriage. Folks, you have to learn. If you're going to be married successfully, you have to learn to communicate. John Powell wrote, Why am I afraid to tell you who I am? He says there are five levels of communication. The first level, he says, is cliché. That's the way we talk with strangers. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Well, we need some rain. Or you come home uh, from work and say, how was your day? You know, stuff like that. There is no commitment. There is no threat in that. But then he says the second level is reporting of facts. That would be a lecture, a newscast. You're just reporting facts. And whenever you come home from work and your spouse says to you, how was your day? Now, there is no threat there as long as your facts are straight. Now, if you start hedging on the facts, you're going to get in trouble. But there is no threat there as long as your facts are straight. He says, then we move to opinion. Now, that's where it gets a little dicey. That's where an argument can break out. Because now you give an opinion. See, if I were to say my favorite football team is the Carolina Gamecocks. Okay, that's no problem. That's just, you know, that would just be a fact. So you just, but if I go on to say they are the best team in college football, now you've got problems. <laughs> because there are a lot of other people who would not agree with that. But you see, there is the expressing of facts, no problem as long as your facts are straight. But when one begins to give an opinion, then there's room for an argument. And then he says the fourth level is the sharing of feelings. Now, when you share your feelings, you're handing someone a weapon that they can beat you up with. For instance, if uh, that's the reason that we don't do much of this, because if I tell you my dreams, you might think they're silly. And you might laugh at me. So as a result of that, we don't talk sometimes about our dreams because we're not sure how someone else is going to respond to them. If you're a young person, you're hesitant to say to another person, I love you. Why? Because they might not love you back. So when it gets down to the area of feelings, then it is very threatening to us. So oftentimes we do not share our feelings. He says the fifth level is that of openness, complete emotional 
and personal self-disclosures, openness. You know what I've discovered? It's, irony. it's an irony to me. It is easier to be open with a stranger than it is with your spouse. It is easier to be open before you get married than it is after you get married. You know why that's true? Because when I'm open with a stranger, I can say any kind of silly thing that I'm thinking about doing and you don't care. You know, I think he's nuts, but that's it. You don't care. If I say something like that to my wife, she is going to react differently because it affects her. And so it is difficult for us to be open with the person to whom we are married because whatever we are going to do is affecting them. But we have to learn to communicate because of its power. You see, the Bible says that there is power in communication. And if you do not learn to communicate effectively within the marriage relationship, then your marriage will not succeed. Now, it is, it is difficult to communicate because of the complexity of communication. For instance, there's the nonverbal communication. We, we communicate so much nonverbally. For instance, touching. When you've been in a fight with your mate and you go to bed at night, what do you do? You scoot over as far as you can so they can't touch you. Well, why is that? Because you're communicating. You want them to know it's not over. <laughs> I'm still aggravated about that. So that is communication. We communicate with our eyes. You see, before we get married, we flirt with our eyes. After we get married, we glare with our eyes. <laughs> but we communicate with our eyes. Then there's body language. Now, you, you've seen that on Bill O'Reilly. I'm not sure how much of that I believe, but we know that we communicate with body language. And then the tone of your voice. Thirty-eight percent of communication involves the tone of one's voice. Let me give you a little sentence. Wife says to the husband, I didn't think you would ever get home. All right? Now, tone determines the meaning. I didn't think you would ever get home. Let me show you. I didn't think you would ever get home. Oh, it's going to be a good night. But if she says, I didn't think you would ever get home, oh, you're in trouble. Same words, but the tone gives the meaning to it. So there is the nonverbal communication, and then there's verbal communication. We have problems communicating verbally. I can say something meaning this, but you can hear something totally different from what I mean. Because 75% of what we hear comes from our experience that we interject into what is being said rather than what is being said. 75% of what you hear, you put into the conversation. You hear your experience. So there's communication. You have to do that. You have to learn to communicate. Third is commitment. We have to be committed to making marriage work, and that means then that I am willing to understand my mate. In fact, Peter said, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. Folks, you have to make the, the effort to understand the person to whom you're married. 
Now, let me say to you, this is very simple. If your spouse grew up in a home where the father or the mother was unfaithful in the marriage relationship, your spouse is going to have a difficult time trusting you. That's just fact. You have to understand that. You have to understand the background of a person so that you understand why they respond oftentimes as they respond. Also, we have to attack problems, not each other. Charlie Shedd tells, says the first letter he got from his wife said, Dear Charlie, I hate you. Love, Martha. <laughs> now, when we attack each other, rather than the problem, we are more interested in winning an argument than we are in building a marriage. Learn to compromise. This is good. This is a good one here. Learn to compromise. Help your mate save face. Give them an opportunity to save face. So you have to learn to compromise. Don't go to bed angry. Ephesians 4.26 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't go to bed angry. Now, you know, I've said this before. Linda and I stayed up for a week one time. But, you know, <laughs> but you don't go to... you. you Keep a short list. My goodness, you're going to get up tomorrow and have a bunch of problems tomorrow. So solve the problems today. Today's problems today, don't hold them over until the next day. So there are three ingredients I believe to be necessary for a marriage to be successful. There is the companionship, communication, and commitment. You must be committed. Secondly, there are challenges in marriage. In the the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, he says, The little foxes that are ruining the vineyards, well, there are a lot of little foxes in marriage, isn't there? There are a lot of little problems out there that make it difficult. There's a, and there's a lot of confusion about marriage today, and much of it comes from secular propaganda. If you, if you listen to the world, they say that marriage is obsolete. Now, getting married, that's, that's so yesterday. You know, that, that's obsolete. You just cohabit today. And then the idea of, of being faithful to one's mate throughout a lifetime, well, that's ridiculous because we live longer than we used to be. That's what the world says to us. And then the idea of submission according to the Scripture, the world sees that as being an archaic notion. In fact, I thought it was amusing. There is a congressman in Florida who's running for office, and he referred to his opponent as Taliban Dan because of uh, him reading the scripture that says that wives start to submit to their husband. The relationship is confusing. Marriage is confusing. It is complex. And it is complex because of other people involved in the relationship. See, it, it, it's hard enough with the husband and the wife but then there are other people who complicate it and make it more complex. Chuck Swindoll says when there's a husband and a wife, there is a one-to-one -one relationship. The husband and wife have a relationship to each other. When there's one child, then there are three relationships. There's a husband-wife relationship, there's a husband-child relationship, and there's the wife-child relationship. He says, when there are two children, there are now six relationships. When there are four children, there are 15 relationships. And if you have more than that, good luck. <laughs> but all of these things tend to confuse because of the complexity. And the truth is, there are a lot of people who marry and they're just too immature to marry. They're too selfish to marry. Confusion, there's a lot of confusion about marriage. Something else that's a danger to it is busyness. Busyness. 
We get so busy. Someone has said that uh, man is the on, only animal that runs faster when he's confused. And we do. We just take off. We're so busy today. And as a result of our busyness, we get irritable. Because I can't get everything done, I get irritable. As a result of that, I become impatient with my wife because I can't get everything done. I am, I'm irritable, and then I become impatient with her. And then because I can't get everything done, I become preoccupied with whatever it is that I can't get done, and now then I ignore her. Do you do that? We're impatient, irritable, preoccupied. Sometimes our problem is in insensitivity. And uh, there are some who are insensitive just uh, because they're not aware. And that's me. I'm basically insensitive to things and, you know, just unaware of feelings. There are some people who are insensitive because they don't care. And that's worse. So I might be bad, but I'm not worse. And then there are some problems because of stubbornness. Folks, you have to understand that in the relationship... That if it is going to work, the man must be submissive to Christ. And the wife is submissive to a man who is submissive to Christ. And the Bible says they both are submissive to each other. And when we stubbornly refuse to do that, then we don't have much chance of our marriage being successful. So there are challenges. Now, how can you have peace in marriage? Well, understand that fights are common. There are going to be fights because there are those little foxes that we have to deal with. And, and sometimes uh, our battles are those periodic skirmishes that come up. You know, they just sort of come up. Oftentimes about silly things. Periodically they're there. And in between those periodic skirmishes, that's the time when you get ready for the next one. That's when you reload so you're getting ready for the next one. So there are those little periodic skirmishes. Sometimes they're just all-out war. I mean, you are, you're ready to go all-out war. Sometimes there's cold wars. That's whenever there's a silence. You know, parenthetically, I think one of the cruelest things a person does is, to, is give the silent treatment. I, I, I really do. I think that is one of the cruelest things that a person does to another person, especially to a mate is to give them the silent treatment. So there are all kinds of uh, problems we have to deal with. So and how, how can we fight in a way that, that we don't do damage to the marriage? Because in that, you want to pr- preserve and protect your marriage, don't you? I mean, you really do. So how then, you're going to have fights. I mean, that's just the way that it is. You're going to have fights. So how then can you fight and uh, not do damage to the marriage? Well, first of all, keep it controlled. You know, that's what the, the Bible is saying or, you know, the way that I would apply it when it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Keep it under control. You should be a controlled person, so keep it under control. Secondly, keep it positive. Focus on the solution, not just on the problem. Oftentimes we become so problem-centered, problem-focused that we can't see. We're not even looking for the solution. So focus on a solution, not on the problem. Thirdly, keep it private. I think that our grandparents were probably right when they said, don't air your dirty laundry in public. Now, I know you'll never get a reality show that way, 
because it seems today people are getting rich from airing their dirty laundry out in public, but that's not wise, and it's certainly not wise within the marriage relationship. Clean it up. After you've had a fight, be willing to clean it up. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.32, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Are you willing, when the fight is over, to clean things up? Or do you want to keep it going? You see, he said, be kind. Now, that refers to grace. The word kind that he uses is a reference to grace. So, have enough grace that you're willing to wipe it off the map. That you're willing to erase it. Kind. And then he uses the word tender-hearted. That is a word that refers to compassion. Have enough compassion that you are willing to care about the one who is hurting. If you have hurt your spouse, you ought to have enough compassion to care that you hurt your spouse. Tender-hearted and then forgiving. He said, we forgive, how? As Christ forgave us. If you have received the forgiveness of Christ in your life, then you are to be willing to forgive as He forgave you. Let me conclude. God created marriage. The idea of two people getting married is not something that was created by the church. It was not something that was created in a think group. It was created by God when He brought Adam and Eve together in marriage. So the idea of marriage came from God. There are challenges to marriage. All of us have challenges because you're blending two people together. And we are very different from each other. So there are all kinds of challenges that we have to deal with. But folks, when we are committed to building our marriage upon the Word of God, if you're, if you're really committed to build your marriage upon the Word of God, then there is going to be satisfaction and there is going to be peace. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, There should be such harmony in the home that angels could dwell with us and never feel out of their element. Isn't that a good goal? There should be such harmony in the home that angels could dwell with us and feel at home. Is your marriage that way? Or have you allowed things to come in and fester, things to come in and separate? Have you allowed Satan to come into your marriage and ruin that, that God wants your marriage to be? Then today, why don't you just start again? Start again. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. As you do so, Think about your marriage for just a moment. How is it? Is it what it ought to be? Is it what you want it to be? Is it what God wants it to be? How's your marriage? Are you building a relationship upon the foundation of Jesus Christ? 
Some of you young people, you're dating. Are you honoring Jesus? I know the temptations. But do you know where it's going to lead? Today, why don't you just commit yourself, Lord? I want to build my life. I want to build my relationships. I want to build my marriage upon the foundation of Jesus. I want to be true to your word. Would you make that commitment right where you are? Lord, I want to make that commitment. Our Father in God, we come to you and thank you for the wonderful people you bring into our lives. Thank you for our husbands, our wives. Thank you for our children that we are trying to bring up to honor you, their relationships. Lord, may our homes be a reflection of heaven. And I pray for each marriage here, each family here. Father, for other commitments that need to be made, we pray that they will be in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, we are going to stand. The choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation. If you have never trusted Christ, would you come today to receive Him? If you need a church home, our doors open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of our family. Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing. As they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.